This morning I have the privilege of introducing our, our preacher this morning. Um, I asked Scott if I could uh, have this honor. Scott's known him much longer than I have as a, a friend, a co-instructor at the seminary, um, a fellow cowboy. Um, I only know Tony as one of my professors at the seminary, and I hope my friend, it's always good when your professor is your friend. His official bio reads uh, that he is a professor of Bible exposition at Cornerstone Seminary. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in animal science from Montana State in 1988 and worked on different ranches throughout the area until his conversion to Christ in 1992. Tony studied at Montana Bible College from 1993 until 1997 and received his Master of Divinity from the Master's Seminary in 2001. He has served as pastor of the Potter Valley Bible Church since 2002. If you don't know where that is, that's up in Cannabis County. I mean, Mendocino County. <laughs> Tony was a speaker at our many men's conference this past weekend and did a very, very outstanding job. Amen, guys? Amen. Amen. He opened up with Philippians 3, 7, and 8, and that was the theme through the conference. And a couple of the notes that I took was he talked about, at first, the surpassing value of knowing Christ, counting all else as rubbish. And before I bring him up, I want to tell you a little bit. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about him. How many of you have heard of the uh, the book, the best-selling novel, The Horse Whisperer, or saw the movie with Robert Redford called The Horse Whisperer? It's about a guy named Buck Brannaman. He was the real-life inspiration for both the novel and the movie. What you don't know is that Tony not only talks the talk, but he walks the walk. At Shepherd's Conference, I found out from a member of Tony's church that Tony rode with Buck Brannaman, that Tony is every bit the cowboy that Buck Brannaman is. And in fact, according to James, probably a better cowboy. But you see, Tony counted all of that as rubbish to know the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so he went a different path. You see, Tony will tell you that while Buck Brandeman may be an inspiration to some, to Tony, Jesus Christ is the inspiration. Amen? And while Buck Brandeman was in a best-selling novel, Tony is in a better book. He's in the Lamb's Book of Life. Buck Brandeman says, Horses are incredibly forgiving. They fill in places we're not capable of filling ourselves. They've given people a new hope, a new lease on life. But Tony will tell you that it is Jesus who forgives you. Jesus completes you, and Jesus gives you a new lease on life. So as Tony comes up, let's give him a Grace Bible Church welcome, and let's hear what this man of God has to tell us this morning. Tony? I wish all that was true, but... <laughs> I got a lot to live up to. <laughs> well, thank you, Chief. I call him Chief for obvious reasons. Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm humbled by anything like that. Um, I'm very privileged to be here. I'm, uh, I had so much fun this weekend with like-minded men who, uh, have a stirring passion to know Jesus Christ. And uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to be with guys like that? 
And because uh, you're going to spend eternity with guys like that, so you better get used to it, right? <laughs> Except you won't recognize me up there because I'll be perfect. Right? <laughs> Amen. Um, yeah, it is glorious to be here. And I, I, I think what I have brought is something that God, and I don't want to get too mystical on you, but I, I searched you know, and knowing I was coming here and not knowing anyone here other than Chief and Scott, that what I have is what God would have you here. Okay? I, I believe that with all my soul. And so I hope you're listening <laughs> and I hope you have your hat screwed down tight because it's, it's a very gripping to me personally. This text speaks to me personally and grips my soul and stuns me at the mercy of God, okay? And if you, I don't do titles very well, but this one came easy for me when they was asked, okay, what, what might be the title of what you're gonna say? And I just immediately thought, scandalous mercy. It's the scandalous mercy of God. And I want us to be stunned afresh by the mercy of God because it's what we all need desperately, even as believers. It's what, it's what sinners need desperately. And you know what? There's good news. God is infinitely merciful towards sinners. And I would hope by the end of this day that saints would be rocked in the core of their soul to have a re renewed, reinvigorated passion for Jesus Christ that would cause, I mean, this worship here was awesome. Truly, I was so blessed by singing with you in this music. Um, you know what fuels that genuinely deep down in your heart, as you know, and I hope you grow in that, is, is, is a true understanding of the grace of God. It's a love for Jesus Christ, gripped by his mercy. That, elicit, that elicits, elicits, see, I'm too much cowboy still. Um, something like that, it brings out of you, right? <laughs> Praise and worship and your life of devotion. Um, so that's my hope here. And if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ savingly, doesn't know him personally, I'm telling you right now that I'm sick in the hound of heaven on your soul and I want you to come to know my Jesus savingly. And I want you to know experientially the flood of mercy in your soul. And you will never be the same. You will never be the same. So with all that to be said, we're going to look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12. Um, it's a lot of text, okay? It's not like a New Testament exposition. There's a lot of text. We're going to read a lot of this text together. We're going to make observations. I hope that we'll kind of shed some light. And there's one verse that's going to stand out and stun us, and it's going to be the point of the whole passage, okay? So we're in 2 Samuel. If you haven't been there in a while, it's on the left half of your Bible, Okay, right? If you're in Psalms, you're not to the left far enough. Second Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to make it hopefully to 12, maybe 14, 13, somewhere over there. Uh, as the guys learned this weekend, I have to take my glasses off so I can read. And I can't see you very well, but I'd rather see the text than you anyway. So I'm going to put it in my pocket, okay? And therefore, if nobody likes me, I can't see you anyway, so... <laughs> so here we're going to see in chapter 11. This is a famous chapter. It's about King David and his lowest point in his life. 
the greatest, I'll call it his scandalous sin, right? It's his, it's his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. I mean, it doesn't get any lower than that. And this is a man who's after God's own heart. This is King David of the Jews, the one in chapter 7 that God made a covenant with David. He was saying to David, your kingdom will be established and you will have a son to sit on your throne forever. It's after that that this happens. King David's great scandalous sin. Now let's just pick it up in verse 1. We're going to read down through here, make some comments, and work our way to 12. Okay? And here in the first five verses, we get introduced to the problem. And then it happened, verse 1, in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. It's because the weather turns good and kings who like to fight, they pick it up again. Right? Let's get after it. Right? And that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. So they had victory. A great victory over their enemies. But then what's the next word in verse 1 after that period? But. Always pay attention to contrast when you're reading scripture. There's something said that finishes the verse for a purpose. Oh, by the way, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now remember, in the spring is when kings go out to battle. Why is that phrase put in there? There's something wrong here that gets your attention. But David stayed at Jerusalem. He wasn't doing what he should be doing. He sent his army and, and his, his warriors out to battle, and he was relaxing back at home at Jerusalem. Now, there's a problem. It's stated that way on purpose. The Holy Spirit wants us to grab hold of that. That's like a tumbleweed blowing and catching into a barbed wire fence. You don't pay attention there, right? It's stuck in the fence. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Verse 2. Now, when evening came... David arose from his bed. I think it's an afternoon siesta is the idea. It gets hot there. And walked around on the roof. They had flat roofs, roofs in those days of the king's house. And from the roof, uh-oh, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance, which means she was easy to look at, right? She was a fox, Right? He didn't just look and look away. He kept on looking. Now we got problems here. The king is looking at this woman who is bathing. Verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. He can do that. He's king. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now there's something to be, t I want you to see here. This title for Bathsheba begins to tell us about some things in the, that you wouldn't come to know unless you kind of search this out. The daughter of Eliam. Eliam now is one of the mighty men of David. One of his inner circle warriors. And he is the son of Ahithophel, which is David's most trusted counselor. Okay? Not only that, then this phrase that follows describing Bathsheba, not only is she the daughter of this man who close, has close ties to David, but she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, that's interesting. First of all, what, by observation, do you see a problem there? Wife, that's a big word with a big problem when it ain't your wife you're looking at, 
right? Uriah the Hittite. This is a foreigner, Hittite. This is one of the folks in the land of Canaan when Joshua was going in to take over the, the you know, after Moses was died and they crossed the Jordan River and he was gonna lead the Israelites into the promised land. These are some of the tribes of people who were to be expelled from Canaan, Hittites. But Uriah, interesting, his name means the Lord, Yahweh, is light, which shows he's a convert. This is a Hittite who has decided to join in to the Israel religion and became a worshiper of Yahweh. And he also is a valiant warrior of David. He is one of his 30 choice inner circle special forces, right? Secret service men. This, is, this lady belongs to men that are very close to David. And he looks down upon her. Look at verse four. We get some bad stuff going on here now, right? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. Now we see just the filth coming up here. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Well, you can't hide those things, right? This crime will become public. She is pregnant and David has sinned a great sin, obviously. Now verse six, he goes on here, and David sent to Joab, because now he's gonna kind of coerce his way and try to fix this problem. He's got the answer. Let's bring Uriah home from the battle. Verse six, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to David, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Can you imagine being Uriah coming back from combat and he asks you this stupid question? You could ask anybody that, right? But Uriah comes back, he's faithful to his king. Verse eight, now this is where David tries to fix his problem. By the way, before we read eight, would you not agree with me that what David has done is we could term it scandalous? Scandalous? Right? Look at verse eight. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. What a strange thing to tell him. What do you think he means by that? Wash your feet. What do you do before you go to bed? You wash your feet. This is like a euphemism for Uriah. Once you go home and sleep with your wife, you've earned it. You've been out of combat. Once you go home and, you know, enjoy your woman, wash your feet. That's what he means by that. David doesn't care about his feet. And Uriah went out. Look at the righteousness of faithful soldier who, by the way, is not an Israelite. He's more, he's more righteous than King David. Uriah went out in verse eight of the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. David's really trying to smooth this dude, right? Verse nine, but Uriah, he did not go home. He did not do that. He slept, in verse nine, at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. He, well, look at what else it says when you get to verse 
10. Now when David, now when they told David saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Have you not come from a long way? You know what that means? You've been gone for a while, haven't you? You've come back from a journey. If, you, if you've been gone for a while, you've been separated from who for a while? Your box of a wife, right? Why did you not go down to your house? He's like, you wouldn't, I mean, the Bible shows all the warts and everything, right? David's challenging Uriah's manhood. What's the matter with you, Uriah? You've been gone a long time. Why don't you go and enjoy your wife? Do you see how David's almost like mocking him? He's almost, he's almost trying to force, obviously, Uriah to go cover up his sin. But God won't let it happen. And, and, and Uriah is more righteous than King David. Look at what goes on to say here. When you get to verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall, then I, shall I then go to my house and eat to drink and lie and be with my wife? See, he understood what he meant. But he can't do it because he's a loyal soldier. Should I have enjoyments when my comrades are out in battle? Remember, that's where David's supposed to be. The rest of verse 11, by your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this. And look at what David begins to do and tries to do Uriah in verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also and tomorrow and I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him in 13. He ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. His scandalous, despicable acts are growing, aren't they? They're getting worse. He wants to get him drunk now. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants. Notice, end of 13. But he did not go down to his house. Drinking. I've had lots of history with drinking in my past, okay? I understand it removes the natural inhibitions, right? How righteous is Uriah the Hittite that even in an intoxicated state, his righteous standard stays the same? Even a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a King David. Get on. <laughs> right? Verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. He's so, he's panicking now. Verse 14 is the bottom of the rung. King David has reached the bottom. He wrote a letter. Fascinating. David wrote a letter to Joab. And who did he send it by? He gave it to Uriah. That even adds, that's just, that's just despicable, isn't it? He didn't have enough class to send it by some other runner. He gave the death sentence to the guy whom he wants dead to deliver it to the general. That's despicable. That just ticks me off. Right? <laughs> Someone ought to do something about this. Right? Verse 15, he had written in the letter, this is, what he, this is what he wrote. Place Uriah in the front of the fiercest battle and then run away so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he, that he put in verse 16, he put Uriah at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. 
The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell. And look at the end of verse 17. David's plan has finally come to fruition. It kind of, he finally got done what he wanted to get done. Uriah the Hittite also died. That's a sad verse. It's a very sad verse. Skip down to verse 22 for the sake of time. The messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 23, the messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers, the archers shot at your servants from the wall, so some of the king's servants are dead. And then it repeats this, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Do you see an observation there that even makes it even worse? Your servant. King David, your servant. He is dead. And David's response even makes me even more upset with David. Look at 25. David in this phony, pious, holy answer. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Hey, in, in combat, people die is what he says. Make your battle against the city stronger, overthrow it, and so encourage him. What a despicable, that, that just ticked, that's a politician right there. Right? How about a bad politician? Not all of them are bad. That's a bad politician right there. That's a phony, counterfeit answer, isn't it? Would you agree with me? Is that scandalous? David is despicable, is he not? Can't get an amen out of that? Amen. amen. He, does he tick you off yet? He should. If you read this in the paper, you'd say, get that dude, right? You're there, we vote for him. <laughs> 26, right? <laughs> but look at 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And 27, when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and then she bore him a son. Stop right there. King David, he doesn't have to worry now. He got over it, man. He, he got it done. Nobody knows, and her husband's dead, and I'm going to show how great of a guy I am. I'm going to go of one of my favorite soldiers. In fact, I'm going to take so good of, I'm going to honor Uriah so much by taking care of his widow. I'm going to bring her into my house and I'm going to marry her and take care of her son as though it's mine. Isn't that nice of David? Right? And nobody knows this. He got away with it, didn't he? That's scandalous. That's shocking. Oh, but you need to finish the verse. It's the first time God shows up dude it's the first time God shows up look at the end of verse 27 I told you to pay attention to but right but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord oh God finally shows up and you know what to him it was evil in the sight of is to be um, God's gaze it, in, in front of God's gaze this was evil. 
He did not get do it out of the gaze of God. How awesome is that? He did not get away. Here is the king of heaven's view of what the king of Israel did. Praise the Lord. There is righteousness in the universe, right? God saw it. Now, let me ask you this real quick. What do you observe? What do you notice about David's secret acts in verse 27 by that phrase? By God's response, what do you learn about David's acts that are secret? Speak to me. They're evil, but what? not only evil, but they don't escape God's sight. You know what? His secret acts were not secret. Now, I might not see it, right? And your neighbors might not see it, but who sees it? God sees it. Does he ever not see it? It's in full view of the living God who's omnipresent. David's sin was in full view in broad daylight from the perspective of God. He didn't get away with it. And it was evil. It was evil in the sight of God. His adultery and his murder was done in the presence of Yahweh. Please let that sink in your head. pastor friend of mine was counseling a young college-age couple. And he had heard some rumors about some unholy activity. And he says, uh, hey, I know someone that saw what you were doing. And of course, he didn't have details. But he said, I know someone who saw what you were doing. And this young couple just broke down and started crying. And they were... They were having sex, but they thought that was in secret. And they said, well, who saw? And he said, God. God. And they said, that's it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's it. God did. David, King David, God saw. God saw. Nothing goes unnoticed, whatever happens. You cannot go where God cannot see. A secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. A secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Can I remind you, just to remind you, of Psalm 139, the first few verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me from behind and before and you laid my hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And then verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Do you, you believe that, right? Who wrote that? King David wrote that. King David wrote that. Wow. Back to 2 Samuel if you've drifted off. So then, the thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
Now the Lord is going to act. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said, and he tells a parable. He tells a story to get his attention. And remember, what did David do before he was king? He was a shepherd. And as a shepherd and as a good shepherd, he loved his sheep. He understands this story. Look at the story. There were two men in one city, one rich, that refers to David, one poor, that refers to Uriah. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, and that would be Bathsheba, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took, look at this, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That's scandalous. And David understands it. Look at verse 5. David's response. Then David's anger burned greatly against him. By the way, Nathan's probably the the bravest man in the Bible. (laughs) Preachers need to learn from Nathan, man. doesn't matter who sins. You go after it. Out of a love for God and a love for that man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, King David speaking, surely the man who has done this deserves to what? To die. Verse 6, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. That's from the Mosaic law. Because he did this thing and had what? No compassion. He's describing himself unwittingly. He's condemned himself unwittingly. The one who has done this deserves to die. And David says he's had no compassion on Uriah. He's basically saying he had no compassion on Uriah or Bathsheba. He just trampled them. And then they... And then like a thunderbolt, look what Nathan says. I love Nathan. (laughs) You are that man. Oh, you talk about caught, drawn up short, right? He hit the end of his lead rope right there. Woo, pulled him back short. Oh, stuck in the heart. You are that man. Verse seven, thus, and now he gives the Lord's Answer, look at how many times I is used in this verse. God speaking through the prophet. It is I who anointed you king over Israel. I gave you that privilege. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I protected you. Verse eight, I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, God says I would have added to you many more things like these. God's not miserly. He's not limited in his blessing. He says to David, in essence, I would have given whatever you needed. Look at verse 9. And now gets to to the heart of the matter in David. But why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Do you see that? Why did he do evil? It's because he despised the word of the Lord. And look what he repeats in verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, murder, and have taken, notice, his wife to be your wife. That's murder and adultery. And have killed him. And he repeats it with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Do you see the point here? 
God is emphasizing his sin and he's, and he's showing the, how the depth of his sin and the scandalousness and the despicableness of his sin by saying, if you would have asked me for anything, I would have given you anything you needed. But you've despised my word. You have rejected my word by committing open adultery and murder. Man. Verse 10 now, therefore, the word, the sword. Now, this is, this is immediate judgment on, the, on David. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me. Look at that. Despise the word in nine. He says, despise me in 10. If you despise the word of God, you cannot disassociate that from the author of the book. You despise the word, you despise God. You can't love God and disregard the Bible. If you love God, you love the Bible. Because it's his word. Well, David was acting like a pagan. A man after God's own heart acting like a pagan. And a Hittite is more righteous than the Israelite. And look at what it says in 10. It will, depart, it will not depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He's just re-emphasizing the despicableness of his adultery. 11. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil, evil against you from your own house, and I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. That was Absalom, his son. Verse 12, indeed, you did it secretly, huh, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. That which God has always known, sometimes he will make known. Now, let me ask you this. According to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what is the Mosaic's judgment on adultery? Death for both of them. Murder? Mosaic law says what? Stone him. That's the word of the Lord to King David. Yes? All right. So we got that understood, right? Look at verse 13. Here you see David's true heart. Yes, he sinned grievously, but he loves God. 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Stop right there. In a word, what has he done there? Repentance. Confessed his sin, repentance, which comes from a heart of faith. He's repented, yes. I have sinned against, notice, he sinned against Bathsheba and he sinned against Uriah, but ultimately, who did he sin against? The Lord. And this, this event, as you know probably, is what's behind Psalm 51. And he confesses his sin to the Lord. True repentance here, true repentance. But David is a scandalous sinner. He did commit adultery, he did commit murder, and the way he went about it was just absolutely despicable. Now here comes the most scandalous part of the whole event to me. What does Nathan say to David? In verse 13. Everybody see it there? The Lord also has taken away your sin, and you shall not what? Do you have a problem with that? I have a problem with that. What do you mean he shall not die? What do you mean he shall not die? 
shall not die. He just, after what I just read, can you say that with a clear conscience? You can't, he will not die? What do you mean? He, 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 better, he better darn sure die. He committed adultery and murder. Yes? Yes. This is scandalous. This is unbelievably scandalous. This sends, this sends ripples through the righteous universe. This causes the righteous into revolt. Yes, how do you act in this land of ours when a elected judge does not with uphold the law when a man who is guaranteed guilty of a crime that deserves a punishment and the judge says, you know, I feel the tinge of goodness in me and I think I'm just going to let you go scot-free. What would you cry out if that guy's crime was murdering your best friend? What would you say? What a judge. That was beautiful mercy. What would you say? Justice. Speak to me. Justice. Justice. Is that wrong? No. Justice. That's called righteous indignation. That sucker should die. In fact, I'll plug it in. <laughs> I'll pull the rope. I'll kick the horse in the tail that he's sitting on. Man, get him out of there. So he hangs there. Am I speaking to, am I speaking French? <laughs> right? Only one would understand, but. <laughs> do, you, do you see what I'm saying? This text is, is slimy. This whole chapter and in the 12 is, is grimy with sin and despicable acts. And now God's joining in on it. I don't like that. If you can't trust God to act righteously, man, who can you trust? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see my point, please? David deserves to die. How dare God say, no, you're not going to die. How would you like to be uh, Uriah's mama? Huh? Uriah's sister. Well, if God don't kill him, I will. Right? He deserves to die. He deserves to die. He must die. He has to die. The soul that sins dies, shall die. If you eat of this, I guarantee God says you shall surely die. The wages of sin is blessing and happiness and what? No, the wages of sin is what? Death. You know why? Because God is righteous. That's why. And the righteousness of God is the pillar of which the universe sets on. That's why the, the beheaded saints around the throne in Revelation cry out, how long, God, will you let those people who spurn your law and hate your son and who have cut our heads off live? Isn't that what it says in Revelation? How long, Lord? What's that rooted in? The righteousness of God. But this ain't very righteous. This is not righteous. David, you shall not die. Look at that verse again. How is it, please, how is it that God can do this? What did he do? It says in 13, the Lord also has, what? Taken away your sin. He has taken away your sin, David. That word in the Hebrew for take away there means to pass over. It means to pass by. 
It's used, the same Hebrew words used in Genesis 8, 1, after the flood and the Lord sent a wind to pass over the water. To pass over. David, I will not hold this against you. It speaks of pardon. It speaks of forgiveness. It is indeed amazing grace and mercy. He deserves death, even eternal death. But God instead has passed over his adultery, has passed over his murder, has passed over his despising of God even. Malachi 7, 18 says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Let me ask you this. Since I got you aroused and hopefully angry at David and at God, you should be angry at God in my sequence here because how can God forgive David of such a hideous crime or any sin and remain righteous himself? You ever thought of that? Amen. Go to Romans 3. Go to Romans 3. How can God forgive David and remain righteous? You know what? God must vindicate his righteousness. In my eyes, right? And in yours. How about the, how about the holy angels who've never sinned and only do righteousness? And when they just cringe when they look down and see unrighteous acts. How long, Lord, will you send us to go down there? Send us. Send us. We will uphold your holiness. Think of the fallen angels. God, you're not, you're not the one who you say you are. You're not righteous. So he has to vindicate his righteousness in order to for, 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 for King David to be forgiven. There has to be something done. Look at 25 of Romans 3. Whom God displayed, this is speaking of Jesus Christ coming off of verse 24, Romans 3, 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation is to a a payment that appeases the wrath of God. Notice, this was to demonstrate. God is putting on a demonstration through the propitiatory death of Jesus Christ. This was a demonstration of what? His what? His righteousness. Don't lose that. God is vindicating his righteousness here in Romans 3, which vindicates his forgiveness of David back in in Samuel 12. How can God forgive David? Because of the propitiatory death of Jesus Christ. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Notice what it goes on to say. Because in the forbearance of God, what did he do? He passed over. There's our word. He passed over. David, the Lord has passed over your sins. You shall not die. And here it says right here, because in the forbearance of God, he, God, passed over the sins previously committed. What sins is he talking about? Murder and adultery and despising of God. We're using David as our topic. Do you see? God can forgive a sinner. 
though he is deserved of death and remain righteous. Because on the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ, the God-man, took the full penalty of the righteous wrath of God. And his life was a a propitiation that pays, appeases, placates, absorbs the wrath of God. And God is righteous, and he must punish sin. And you know what? He did, he did, he did in his son, Jesus Christ. He was the whipping boy so that sinners could be forgiven and pardoned, full pardon, complete pardon. David, you shall not die. You know what? Tony, you shall not die, though you deserve it a thousand times over because I whipped my son in your place. This is what he says. He passed over the sins previously committed. Even in, the, even in the Levitical law, all those sacrifices of those animals, that didn't forgive anybody. Hebrews tells me that. If they did, what's the need for the Lamb of God? Those sacrifices were done in faith, and they pointed to the greater sacrifice. You see? God passed over sins previously committed because he knows what he's going to be doing in the future in the person of Jesus. Look at what it says in 26. He repeats the word, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that the result of this, he, God the Father, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. Is that not glorious? Now, think, think of this, please. What is your view of... Uh, According to what we just read here and how David was forgiven and pardoned, is anybody outside the mercy of God? Is anybody outside the grace of God? How about a rapist? How about a pedophile? How about an abortionist? How about those cowards at Fort Hood? Take me off. How about those guys? How about terrorists who blow up Twin Towers? How about terrorists who blow up malls and schools? Are they outside the grace of God? Are they outside the grace of God? No. What if they walked in that door right there? We'd all get up and say, lock the door for sees we're here. No, that door flies open. And you say, come, come, come and experience the mercy of God. You can be forgiven of all your sins because of what Christ did on the cross in placating the wrath of God that you deserve. And God can forgive you. David can be forgiven because of what Christ did. Justice is upheld. Justice is vindicated in the cross of Jesus Christ. How awesome is that? I wanna just throw this at you. Do you realize that you and I are as bad as David? We're more like David than we are like Jesus, let me tell you. Amen? In practice. I am more like David, even as a redeemed person, than I am like Jesus. What's that mean then? 
You don't need mercy anymore. You're now, now that you're saved and, you know, you're walking with Jesus and things are cool, you know, and things at home are lining up nice, you know, your kids greet you in the morning, your wife even kisses you on the cheek. Hey, life's good, man. You don't need mercy anymore. I'm actually a gift to God. God ought to be awful glad I even showed up today. Right? You laugh because I think sometimes we think that way. Maybe not here, but up there we do. Do you see, I want to just have this grip us because we're more like David. Therefore, like David, we need what? Mercy. His mercies are new every morning, says Lamentations. We need mercy every day. We need his pardoning, sovereign, omnipotent grace and sovereign, omnipotent mercy. Don't we? Not only does that affect us in how we treat one another, how we view God, how we think of unbelievers, it just, it just changes our whole life. It's like that old famous saying when it's speaking of a, 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 a rank sinner who's not converted yet, there go I but for the grace of God. That's why I know you're so focused here on the person of Jesus Christ because he's the only answer and the only hope. Saints need Jesus as much as sinners need Jesus. And so we put forward the consolation of Israel, the Messiah. We put forward Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the dispenser of mercy. Do you need mercy? He's the dispenser of mercy. Do you need grace? He's the dispenser of grace. Will you ever max out his storehouse of mercy? Will you ever max out his storehouse of grace? It's infinite. He freely gives it out. And you need much of it. Good thing he has a lot of it. And he's very patient. He's very loving. He loves you, saints. You belong to him. He has had mercy on you. He's continuing to have mercy on you. He loves you eternally, infinitely. You will never break away from the bonds of his love. Never. If there's saints here who have sinned like David, return back to Jesus Christ and call out on his mercy. You will never break through the bonds of his grip. He loves you infinitely. His mercy is untappable, man, and it does not dissipate. You're not going to show up someday and he's going to say, you know what? It's been 20 years. You still sin. I'm through with you. I'm tired of it. No more mercy for you. I've about poured all I out on this guy, right? I'm done with you. Is that what he says? No. We keep coming for mercy, coming for mercy, coming for mercy, coming for mercy. Boom, then you go to glory. Praise the Lord. And Jesus is constantly having mercy on us. Isn't that what Hebrews 4 says about coming to the throne of grace so that we might receive what? Mercy in the time of need. You're not like me. I have lots of needs. But if you ever have needs, I want you to go to Jesus. <laughs> Let's close in Romans 12. Romans 12, one verse, very famous verse. But you see our word mercies, and it's in the plural. Notice what it says. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, that should be y'all. <laughs> I urge you, y'all. 
It's the Greek plural you, second person plural. Right? Down, down South Alabama, they say y'all. Therefore, I urge y'all, brethren, by the mercies of who? God, look at, look at the impact or the, what would you say, the responsibility, the burden on the one who has received the mercies of God. We are to present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Look at the impact of mercy on us. It causes us to be Christ worshipers. It moves us to give our life away to serve the one who has had so much mercy on me. Can I do anything else? For, to not do verse one, beloved, is to be insane. It's to be illogical. Notice, it's, it's to be in, unreasonable. How can you look at the mercies of God shown to you in the Lord Jesus Christ in particular and how he has pardoned you of all your sin and continues? How can you observe that, look at that, and not present your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice? That's why you sing so loud here, right? You're gripped by the mercy of God and his glory. May it continue. And may you take this merciful God, this merciful Christ, take him out into your work, take him out into your home, take him out into your sphere of influence and preach the mercy of Christ. Preach him. Preach him. Amen? Amen. Shall I pray? Father, we are grateful for your mercy and your grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for anyone here who has never experienced your mercy, that you show them even now that they are a great sinner, but you are a greater savior. So bless them with salvation. Bless the saints, Father, with a reinvigorated passion for Jesus Christ. And may the mercy of you be brought even deeper into their attention, into their mind, and that it would, it would just produce in them a more greater love for the Son. Thank you for loving us first, Father. We love you. May you be pleased with our words and our actions and our thoughts this day. In Jesus' name, amen.